1: Welcome to Lama Surya Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com/suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Surya to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom.
2: But What I want to talk about today is a little more, and you can read you know, a lot of this is common knowledge, is stepping out, stepping up, making bokden, enhancement, triple jupa, entering the activity, really going for it, crazy wisdom, free freedom, actualizing freedom, and so forth. Which it's hard to read about, it's hard to hear about, it's not, it's, it's a little more tricky, it's a little more risky. It lends itself to people getting the spiritual diseases of like I mentioned the other day, to to him, a premature immaculation, saying, we're all, if we're all Buddhas, why do we have to do anything? It lends itself to um, other pitfalls, like uh, spiritual paralysis or nihilism, nothing matters, and so forth. These are pitfalls. But I'm just going to mention it, and you can follow it up if you're into these things. Bokden, enhancement, view, meditation, action, the ground, path, and fruit, and then stepping up, stepping out, what's next? Beyond isms, beyond Buddhism, beyond meditation, beyond spirituality, actualizing the inherent freedom of being. The kingdom of heaven, not just praying for it and not just being an usher in the theater and seating people in that kingdom. That's fine. That's bodhisattva work but enjoying everything as it. Like the great Naropa, Marpa Milarepa's guru in the Kagyu lineage, who went through his many years as an abbot of Nalanda University, as a spick and span pundit and master and meditator and leader and teacher, professor abbot. And then he had a dream of a dakini who told him that, That was all very well and good, but his real master was the wild-eyed yogi, Tilopa, who lived under the bridge in Calcutta, living on the awful, thrown away by the fishermen. In other words, a homeless yogi. And Naropa gave up everything, and and he left his great, prestigious, tenured abbotship at Nalanda. This is history. And he went and sought that master. And along the way, he was accosted by the sight of a hag, a crone, ugly, disgusting, filthy, leprous, beggar, ancient woman along the dusty path. And he was a spick and span monk walking along, semi-proudly, Brahmin family who wouldn't, doesn't touch meat, women, food prepared by untouchables, and so on. And there was the image of everything that he was impure in his entire upbringing. and he consorted with her and that was his great transformation into a mahamudra master she was really vajrayogini the dakini incarnate so that's stepping up and stepping out of being a pure brahmin in the caste system in which there were untouchables and you know i won't use the n word and the high white people with their white foods and their politically incorrect hierarchy the horrific caste system, which still goes on now, but still we have the class system and other things here in our own country and in our own judgmental minds. So this is the outrageous, crazy wisdom of going beyond, risking everything, throwing away everything he'd worked his whole life for. <clears throat> he might get leprosy. Of course, breaking his vows of celibacy, need I mention, and touching and sleeping and rolling around in the, in the, the mud with the, the leprous hag who liberated him from such concepts and pointed him, she was Naropa's sister, pointed him, uh, Talopa's sister, pointed him to where the, the unfindable, you know, no, no email address, no mailing address, no phone number, Yogi was living like a homeless under a bridge in Calcutta. And then he went and, and still he wasn't done. Talopa put him through the horrible, the travails and many impossible tasks where he got beaten almost to death and other things. The symbol of what one needs to go through to really go beyond and be a master, a siddha, a master. Get all the spiritual powers and accomplishments, not just feel better. Get wellness and mental health. Until finally, the crazy, red-eyed, wild-eyed tulip kicked Naropa. I mean, Naropa was kneeling in front of him getting, I don't know what kind of crazy teachings. We shouldn't say kicked. The book says something like, he hit Naropa in the face with his filthy, dusty sandal. And Naropa awoke. He awoke. His, he, he realized, Mahamudra, that his mind was Buddha mind, was no different than Talopa's mind. And that That jawbreaker, that that head-breaking kick in the face, it's still reverberating down to us today through the whole Kagyu lineage and many of the masters of today who one would know about, like the Karmapa, Trungpa Rinpoche, the founder of Shambhala and Naroka, Kala Rinpoche, and all of them, a thousand years later. That's stepping up, stepping out, taking it to the next level not just meditating a few minutes or hours longer, or going to a longer retreat. Of course, today, notwithstanding the various games that masters do play, we really can't kick people in the face or hit them without serious litigation and other problems. Much as we might want to, no, we don't really want to, much as they might need it. But there are other means, you know, other. (laughs) It's still possible. Like the jewel cutter knows where to tap on the jewel to open it up and reveal its facets, not just hitting it with a hammer and ruining the diamond or the ruby emerald. We can see where the vital, we master see where the vital flaw is and can tap on that with their pithy instructions or other things, pointing to the sky in the symbolic lineage, not just using words, and other things mind-to-mind, heart-to-heart transmission, spiritual resuscitation. Like mouth-to-mouth, heart-to-heart, spiritual resuscitation in direct transmission lineage. So that's where notions of which Buddhist pioneers, outrageous teachers like Chögyam Trungpa and others talk about this outrageous, crazy wisdom beyond the Buddhism, as, as Nam Norbu says, beyond this planet. Out of this world might be the right translation for us to understand. It's not just within the rational framework of our nice humanistic, probably mostly green, mostly progressive, liberal mentality. You know, I look around with white upper middle path mentality. The phoenix arising from the ashes, etc. So that's Bogdan enhancement or stepping out, stepping up, stepping out, and Ladawa literally crossing over or, or the narrow pass. I see Keith Dowman in his recent newest book is translating it as consummation or something. I don't know, or total realization, that's fine. But what it really means is like, going beyond here and now. Going beyond here. Going beyond now. Being beyond, not going anywhere. That's the narrow pass. That's the needle. A rich man can't get through there, as Jesus said, because too much stuff, rich in ideas, rich in extra baggage. How to get from here to totally here, that's the needle. That's the narrow pass in the high mountains that we can't think our way through, the mind is not the right tool for that. Naked awareness, pure presence, rikpa, that's the way. Beyond duality, direct access, etc. So that's a little bit more like advanced Dzogchen or that's the view meditation action and results. This is in the result or fruition category, not just the action where we still think about getting there on the path, the bodhisattva virtues. And all, but the result, outrageous crazy wisdom, more on the wise side than the crazy side as the Dalai Lama said should be emphasized. So I see the time is running, I just want to cover some things, basic and also a new, slightly newish material. Any questions please, we're sharing. It's good we have a nice, young, and energetic Dakini Mike hopper, isn't it? Isn't Judy doing a great job every morning at the 7 o'clock yoga? Tibetan Energy yoga? Thank you, Judy. Judy should get a gong for that, don't you think? Three gongs? Does the first one count? Thank you, Judy. You're a beauty.
3: I actually Two questions, but I'll try yes. to make them quick. So the first is, um, you know, trying to to practice dharma within my life, um, especially as a young person living in New York and a, a student at business school. Uh, there is a very uh, hedonistic lifestyle that is actively encouraged by my peers, and
2: uh, <laughs> I'm shocked.
3: Yeah, I know. I know. Who knew? Uh, and uh, and, and trying, to, trying to practice moderation in that, uh, uh, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, sometimes I even find myself lying to people. Like, if they ask, oh, when did you leave last night? I didn't see you. I'll say, oh, you know, it was yeah. so crazy. I don't even remember. Yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> and, uh, you mean, rather than saying, I left early?
3: Yeah, rather than saying, I, yeah.
2: I left early.
3: Because I, I know, had enough. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well. There's lying and there's lying, you know, that's like they call a little white one, I don't know, I'm not such an absolutist, so I won't, you know, exclude a little of that from the skillful means of the path, but it's a slippery slope with rationalizations and lying. But as I've said here, self-deception is really the issue. So if you're very honest with yourself, there's nothing wrong with a little. You know, there could be harder questions. Now you're a young person, as you say. But you know, soon you might be not so young, and your wife or your husband or somebody will say, "Oh, am I getting fatter? How do I look in this new in my in this dress for the wedding?" Yes. Then total disclosure is not necessarily required.
3: Yeah. Keep going.
2: Um, so uh, anyway.
3: Oh yeah, and, and the uh, you're
2: not the first person to struggle with the environment that they're in that may or may not feel conducive to what we're talking about, or really more importantly, what you are hoping to, you know, accomplish or practice. So if it's not the hedonistic young people's world of whatever, I don't know. You're wearing a Columbia shirt, maybe Columbia, but whatever. Business school, even. That sounds bad, but, you know, I mean, you know, joking, worldly, you know, whatever. But, I mean, there are the people that, you know, what do I do when I go home to my five kids? And my, you know, mother-in-law that lives with us who, you know, whatever, sick, crippled, Alzheimer, hates me, you know. So, it's really always the same. It's like, who's doing what around here? Do you have the agency? Or not, who's responsible? Are you the victim or are you going to be the master? Or, you know, in between. Remember what I said about the 10 parameters, like it also, it's not just meditation all the time. it also includes resolve and skillful means. It's, you know, and patient forbearance. It's a 10-spoked it's a wheel. So, not just, I can't meditate there because nobody else is, but. Maybe you have your own resolve, or, you know, I don't know. Maybe you have some other interests that's different than your roommate or your friend. And that may not be easy to pursue either, but somehow you find a way to, right? Yeah. We're not talking about lying now, you know, we're just talking about growing up. Yeah. And like being autonomous within interdependence, not just being independent. Teenage ideas of independence are just like halfway. Autonomy, finding autonomy within interdependence, within relationships or resting in the view in, you know, in any situation, or practice, or encounter, and not self-consciously sitting there and closing your eyes and going, ah, when you're arguing with your I don't know who, your, your thesis advisor, your roommate, your partner, but you know, the view is a little more subtle. And also, sharpening the awareness helps, so it's processing more quickly, not thinking more fast. Sharp processing. So you have more mind moments between stimulus and response to decide how, when, and if to respond, not just blindly react. And also, you're at Columbia. There's an unbelievable amount of spiritual activity, Buddhist activity, Tibetan Buddhist activity there and around there. Do I need to tell you? I'm sure you're aware of it. Yeah, Bob Thurman. Bob Thurman and other people, and Tibet House, and we all teach in New York, and we were sitting. You know, everybody. There's a lot of places in New York you could go, anytime and do anything. So kindred spirits. So your your horrible hedonistic, you know, roommates and friends and business, whatever they are, students, business school students yeah. no, no, I mean, are not the only people in the environment. That's where the yeah. sangha comes in, and also you know they have their beautiful sides. That's why you they're your friends. So. You know, you relate yeah, to them, no problem. Yeah, so yeah And it's a challenge, yeah, it is. like anywhere else, step by step through the snowy Himalayas, with or without all the perfect tools one might imagine. So I hope that's helpful. Right?
3: Yeah, it is. Um, also, the, the second question I had um, is, is on the, the business front. Um, and especially as someone, it sounds like you've, you've gone through a lot of traditions. Um, what has been your experience with advertising? Uh, because certainly, I mean, there have been, <laughs> I've run into you know, a lot of schmucks out there who, who get the advertising right and not much else. Uh, and, uh, maybe, maybe the latter. Because um, you know, I mean, like, you know, you, you write books and you, you have those books out there. And uh, I mean, that's, that's more than some people would do.
2: Yeah, uh. right. Is that advertising? I think to, yeah, there is. I mean, there's ad- more like publicizing the books and right, ads yeah. that's, and marketing. That's the advertising part. Yeah. But go on. I'm listening. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of schmucks in every, you know, walk of life, probably. Yeah. I mean, schmucks are in the eye of the beholder, but that's another story. We've already handled, talked a lot about that. Projection, subjectivity, interpretation. But... Um, Are you saying there's plenty of schmuck-like spiritual teachers who advertise a lot? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to comment on us, but um, (laughs) I, I don't know. Like- I, I like write I write and teach I've been writing my whole life I like you know and it's a seamless whole for me yeah. writing teaching and like some form of spiritual social activism trying to bring these things forth in the world to contribute to the world the better world and bring Buddhism to the west and specifically Dzogchen in the west as part of western dharma so when you put out a book then somebody publishes it and advertises it. And you go around and you do certain things with the media. And, and it's a middle way. Everybody has to decide differently. Joseph Goldstein doesn't write that much. He doesn't go on that. you know, He doesn't advertise much. But his center does a certain amount of advertising. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are some, I don't know who you want to pick on, who advertise a lot and go around a lot. So it's like artists. Yeah. Some very good artists advertise a lot, and some you know, very bad artists advertise and self-promote a lot. So what are you really asking? You're in the business school? No, it doesn't seem like advertising. I mean, what does that mean? You know, we said Madison Avenue, like it's a unequivocally bad. No. Business is not bad. Politics, even, is not bad. What's, what's your real question?
3: Well, it,
2: I, mean, I mean, are we talking about virtual advertising or are we talking about your path? Like, are you heading in the advertising and marketing direction well, I, I through am. your business school career? Yeah. And, well, so come and volunteer for us. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> we need some help to help people find out about this great, low-cost Very ecumenical thing that we do here regularly, year in and year out. So we can keep going, bringing the Dharma to the West, and making it a genuine, transformative, you know, beautiful, non-exploitative Dharma. Not like some of the schmucks around, I won't mention, since you have some in mind, you know, I do too. Yeah. (laughs) We're trying to do our best here. It's hard to do it alone. Yeah. So? If you must know, my literary agent and, and editor are coming to lunch today. As I'm just finishing my new book on co-meditations, it's coming out May 1st, and um, <laughs> one of them is in the room. I won't point it out. To, I don't. I want to protect the guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and they want me to hire a publicist to publicize the book, and I'm going to. I mean, that's called business. Life, that's part of my work.
3: Yeah. No, I mean I guess it's just that like, you know, even even when you have something to deliver, it can look just the same as, as the people who don't have anything yeah,
2: to deliver. It does sometimes. So that's why we need to cultivate back to our usual subject about cultivating clarity and discrimination and discernment and intelligence and not being oversimplistic, or just black and white thinking, or rush to judgment. There's probably good advertising, bad advertising, and what kinds in between? Just like there's, to use your word, there's schmucks in the pulpit, and there's saints in the pulpit, and everything in between. And also, probably none is complete, a whole, you know, whatever the word is, you know. right. One thing, unequivocally schmuck, unequivocally saint. Right. Thank you. So I'm sure there are moles on Madison Avenue who are very much promoting the humanistic values of some wonderful thing or other, not just trying to get rich quick or retire or deceive people with deceptive advertising and subliminal messages to, I don't know what, addict people. There's probably moles there, just like there are in every other walk of life. Bodhisattvas, whatever you want to call them. Questions? Right livelihood, as you know, since you're a smart guy, you have experience with Buddhism, is the fifth step on the Eightfold Path. Right? So what is right livelihood? Like, wise vocation, finding your true work, finding a work that grows you, doesn't stunt you. Not just finding something that helps others. Like, we don't all have to be Mother Teresa or in the, what do they call it, the helping professions. But, of course, non-harming and others goes along with that. But isn't it interesting that Buddha himself considered right livelihood one of the eight steps equal to mindfulness, concentration, ethical self-discipline, et cetera. Very interesting. Also, where lay people look around, I don't see any monks or nuns here, so livelihood just like, (laughs) relationship, you're a retired corporate executive relationship and mother, relationship's a very important part of our life. <laughs> Questions? Here yes. I am back Hi. Can you hear me? Yes.
4: Um, I want to thank you very much for all the teachings you've given us this week. I came to this retreat wide open And I have taken these teachings, and I've cooked them all week. And I've come up with a question. Who am I? Seventy-four years ago, I was given the name Douglas. Later in life, someone called me Swan. I thought, what's in a name? that really doesn't define who I am. The only thing that I can come up with is consciousness and awareness, and that's so big, I can't wrap my head around it. So I That's who you
2: are. So big that you can't wrap your head around it, but also no need to. That is your real head. You don't have to wrap your little pinhead around that. That's your real head. Why identify with our pinhead? We're like the Coneheads, but it's a fake. You know, it's a—it's like a prosthetic. It's like a mask we forgot we donned because we're too big. You can't walk around being one all the time. You have to, you know, fit in. At home, at the dinner table, at class, professionally, whatever. You don't always have to be, fit into the square hole or the round hole, but you can't walk around just you know, being one and divine and in exalted oneness all the time. There's also the relationships of life and roles we play. So yes, can't wrap our head around it. That's why I, I'm glad you brought up this question. That's why we have the self-inquiry question, which I mentioned during the week, about looking into who or what is experiencing, who am I? Who's on first, the, the notion of identity? It's a great timeless self-inquiry or like spiritual inquiry practice. As Ramana Maharshi, the modern promulgator of this self-inquiry question, who am I, said, when you realize who am I, you realize what is God and what is man. Woman, I don't know, but that's what he said. What is God and what is man? Are you with me? So it's not a small question. It doesn't afford an easy conceptual or you know, wor- answer in words. And yet, you know the difference between being a teenager and identity crisis, however long that lasts, and finding yourself. Like you wish your children to find themselves and then you see that they do. It's hard to define what that means, but it's a kind of a definite, perhaps gradual, but you know, maturation and, t- and shift, though, kind of getting over the hump, hitting their stride. So some people would agree exactly, literally, whatever you just said, consciousness and something. Awareness. Satchitananda in the ancient Upanishads of India, that we are Ananda, truth, conscious, bliss. Not just a head, an IQ, a personality, a name, a gender-based body, etc. cetera. Ananda truth, consciousness, bliss. That's our nature. That's what the ancient Hindu scripture says. Last question. Thank you, Swani. Thank you. I like your name, Swani. It's so graceful and beautiful, like you. Last question. Yes. I
5: have to explain my question a little bit. So,
2: Try to make it short, please.
5: Maybe I shouldn't ask.
2: Come on. Get to your question.
5: OK, it's, uh, for example, you get these moments of, wake, of awareness. You say catch, so you wake. But uh, what exactly is that supposed to be? Because for me, that, that wake, I notice, I'm like, hey, I'm awake now. That's interesting. I was just, I walked all the way over there, and I wasn't there. Then I realized I'm here. But my here is very, uh, the one sense, or maybe two senses. just the seeing and the mind. But then there's other senses. For example, when you eat, you're, you're there, and you're there with the taste sense. But uh, is awareness supposed to be all six senses?
2: Yes, very good. You nailed it. Buddhist psychology or Abhidharma analyzes it that there's six senses. Six senses, they're like gates or doors or something. And there's six consciousnesses, meaning there's consciousness That processes or relates to each of the six senses. So they're not really, it's not like there's six monkeys in there. So there's the visual sense and the auditory sense and the olfactory sense and, you know, whatever. And then there's the mental sense, which, you know, like the eye, the, the visual sense sees forms, the auditory sense hears, the auditory consciousness hears sounds the mental consciousness perceives thoughts and related things. Not just thoughts, moods, consciousness, and so on. So consciousness is the primary. And then each of the senses is like a tentacle or, you know, a lamp or a gate. However you imagine things coming in or it's reaching out. It's like scanning, like sonar or radar.
5: But... um
2: so that's why consciousness is the active ingredient. Even if, you know somebody's blind or deaf, they can still be wise, learned, awakened and. Light. like Helen Keller, with all of her handicaps, such a brilliant, quote, "mind and a great, altruistic heart.
5: So not being handicapped with the, having a full uh, array of the six senses, am I uh, have a, a limited awareness when I, don't, when I, for example, only am aware of sight? Even though, uh, for example, right now, if I could go aware to my elbow and feel my elbow, my hand, and my whole body, there's so many things that we're not aware of unless we focus on it. Is it supposed to right. be all-encompassing awareness? or is
2: It, it is all-encompassing awareness, but it, it's a matter more in the moment practical as to what your focus, attention is on. It's like the back burner and you might have all six burners going and you know pot bubbling on each of them while you cook dinner is just a metaphor. But you might have the front burner and the back burner and the front burner you're more working on. You're stirring the wok fried vegetables, whatever, sauteing the vegetables on the front burner while on the back burner, the brown rice. I know I'm dating myself. The brown rice is, is simmering. So while you're seeing, or while you're, what have you just said? You know, there are, the other senses are there. They might even be active, but you're, most of your, your attention is not, you know, you're not that aware of your thoughts, let's say, while you are, um, I don't know, seeing something fascinating. You're not that aware of the sounds while you're seeing something fascinating. Or maybe you're aware of the music and the vi- the visuals in the movie, but you're not so aware of the body sensations while you're involved in the fascination of those two senses. You know what I'm saying? So Buddha said that, and this is just you know a saying, I don't know, it would be worth studying this neuroscientifically even today, that the mind can only hold one thought at a time. So if you move your attention, you're really... Like, if you have a pain and you move your attention, it would be very hard to say that you feel the pain if you move your attention to another object of attention. Thus, the breathing exercises of natural childbirth and other techniques move your attention, then it's very hard to say that something is afflicting you at that moment, you know, that there's a pain if you're not aware of it. You with me? So. It's well known and it's been well explained about the doors of perception that if they weren't somewhat veiled or modulated, that we'd be overwhelmed by the sensory data. Maybe attend carefully to the quick stir fry vegetables if everything's happening at once on, the, on the, that one burner. So I hope that's helpful.
5: Yes. Thank you. Can
2: I ask one more question? Sure. You're on the you're on the right direction about the awareness and the attention. So don't you don't need to theorize it too much. But of course, these things could be studied. Also, there's a lot of information about this kind of thing. Awareness and attention and focus and where you are, you know, like you. That was the beginning of your question. Where am I when I'm eating and I forget that I'm I don't know whatever you say walking or vice versa. So a lot of it is about the forgetting and the remembering. Where you're attending to, which conscious, which gate of consciousness you're attending to, or what activity. Like while you're driving, if you forget that you're driving and you're too much listening to the music or to whoever's talking to you in the back seat, you have an accident because while you're driving, you know that has to be front burner. It's a it's a slightly dangerous activity, right? You have to be watching and you know paying attention, mostly your attention on that. Last question, time's running out.
5: So, the awareness that you're always talking about is, is just those one or two senses on the front burner?
2: It's really this moment, what's happening, what arises right now. And the rest we have. But there's add, more than add. one
5: thing happening at this moment right Yes. Now. But how many of that do you notice? That's the question. And the one I notice, when I do <clears throat> notice, that's awareness. Even if it's a limited, maybe. That's for example, the pro- your that's per- it sounds like
2: perception, than... but that's, a, that's the perce- awareness perceiving. A sound. You need to think more about it. but let me give you the the Buddhist adage. Buddha said, in hearing, there is just hearing. No one hearing it and nothing to listen to. In seeing, there's just seeing. No one seeing it, nothing to see. So the point is, it's a subject-object interaction. The three pieces have to be there. And if you say, I am seeing it, you're adding on... (coughs) that there's a monkey looking out through the window, seeing a tree. Where's the monkey? And seeing there's just seeing. In that moment of bare, naked perception, that's awareness. There's no, <clears throat> there's no coagulated, separate you who is aware. That gets added on by your memory and <clears throat> sense of identity. That's the theory. Anyway, that's why we practice being so in the moment that we're not conditioned by past or future. Nowness awareness is the ultimate therapy. I always say this. There's no conditioning in the sharpest moment of moment. There's no previous and, and future. There's no conditioning. That's naked awareness. That's not me being aware of things. That's many mind moments down the road. Thank you all.
1: Thank you for listening to Lama Das's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the Amazon.com link for all of your purchases. Namaste.
2: There is he one.